Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Hello everyone, I am Ayushi Mona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature. Today I have with me Shabnam Meenwala. She writes for newspapers, uh, plays mother to three teenagers, devours murder mysteries, writes books for children. And today we're going to discuss her book, which is Kolaba, the Diamond at the Tip of Mumbai. This book, I think, is so reflective of what I wanted to do with India Booked that not only did I immensely enjoy reading it, it actually uh, strengthened my belief that, you know, there are so many of these stories present in our milieu that we forget and which we allow, you know, the time passing or situations changing to take away from how we imagine our country to be and how we imagine our communities to be that that this reading this book actually was a personal experience and and very satisfying shamnam welcome to the show and thank you so much for doing this total pleasure i'm delighted to be here so shamnam first of all i have to ask you right um you talk in the book that you, that you know the book was conceived in kalaghora right when you were meeting your editor yes yes in a cafe there yes did the book come to you or did you go to the book and how did, what was that moment really when both you and and your editor said that oh let's um you know do something like this Well, I primarily write books for children, but I write books for children with a very clear agenda. Of course, to tell a story, to make it fun, to make it exciting, but also to tell stories to, for Indian children, which are set in their world and their environment. Mumbai, Bombay, the city is a very important character in all the books I've written, and all my books have a very strong sense of place. Now uh, my editor Radhika had come, and we were meeting in Kalaghora just to chat about another series of books that I had done for Speaking Tiger, uh, about a schoolgirl named Nimi and her adventures and misadventures in school. Um, towards the end, we were finishing up our sandwiches and our milkshakes, and we were chatting. And Radhika mentioned that uh, they are doing a series of books about neighborhoods around India and in other countries as well. and she asked me would you do a book on a mumbai neighborhood and i was a little thrown because i see myself on one hand as a journalist and on the other hand as a writer of books for children so i didn't see where this book would fit in but uh, radhika was pretty uh, persuasive and she said think think there must be some neighborhood in the city in the city that you are comfortable with and uh, then i just said well kolaba that's where i've grown up and I mean that's the only place I could ever imagine writing a book about. So she just said done. That's the book we are writing, and uh, give uh, and promptly dished out the deadline. And I was getting paler by the minute because I had a bunch of children's books I wanted to write, and I wasn't sure where this would fit in with my larger life plan. But uh, Radhika, being my editor for some time and being very sweet and uh, uh, eager soul, I said okay. But I still wasn't sure I would really deliver it. what actually happened was when i started doing a little research in my off time and i really found it very, a lot of fun 
because when you write fiction even if it's only fiction for children you tend to delve very deep into your own you know your imagination and there is a time when your imagination needs some kind of prop up and i'm not a very uh, outgoing and social person so i sit a lot of the time at home writing and doing research into kolaba and its past i think really gave me insights into other worlds other times other other emotions other moods and it really really i don't know it, it uh, has inspired me greatly and i think will inspire my fiction in the future as well and once i started that research i knew this was a book that had to be written and if nobody was nobody else was doing it i would so yes that's how kolaba happened i am i'm glad for it you know and i think thank you radhika uh, because <laughs> reading this book you know shabnam at this point of time right when all of us have been cloistered inside our houses for so long was such a personal and enriching experience right because of course i've been to kolaba like almost everyone who's lived in mumbai for some or the other either to meet a friend or to go buy something you know for different purposes and and there is obviously a memory uh, which is very viscerally attached uh, uh, to those moments and when i read the first chapter you know when i started reading the book i i felt i literally breathed in and breathed out and then i felt that i was walking the roads again so for me uh, i think the book was made special by the fact that i haven't been uh, to kolaba for a long time as well um but of course the book is really a traveler's delight it's a, a bombay wala's delight it's it's a delight for somebody who's lived in the city or somebody who's recently come to the city um and it's also a very nice i think tongue in the cheek thing when i think right at the beginning you make that remark about uh, one having to constant dismiss that one is not a snob by virtue of the fact that they live in kolaba so a uh, borrowing from this right one of the ways right i found this book very interesting uh, shabnam is how you structured it right so there is for those of you listening to the podcast every chapter begins with an excerpt from somebody who who's intrinsically linked to kolaba and that person could be an alik padmasi it could be a fisherman and then and then uh, and then shabnam goes on to explain and and write and give us such rich detailing and then it ends with a you know a, a lesson what what made you choose this particular structure because it it was delightful and it's also something we don't really see often you know it just came i i guess as i started writing all these lessons for life started popping up in my head and okay so when i first wrote the book what happened was the first two chapters were very personal and the rest of the book was largely history and stories and i felt and later when radhika read it we we both felt that you know it was there was too much of a jump in style so my challenge then was to bring the personal into the impersonal and the impersonal into the personal and i think the course helped a lot because it it gave a variety of voices largely otherwise the voice is mine and the voice of a lot of historical sources i did a lot of interviews but i didn't want to use a very journalistic style of he said she said he recalled she recalled you know the classic kind uh, of india style if i may Uh, I wanted to keep it more flowing and more easy and more, um, you know, uh, more. I'm a fiction writer now, so you know that fiction uh, style stays with me, and I wanted that to remain. At the same time, I wanted other voices, and so I decided to start each chapter with a quote from somebody. And 
in a way, a course that connected a little, not entirely, but a little with what I was then saying in the chapter. And I was jotting down these lessons for life and I wasn't sure what I would do with them. I wasn't sure if I would even use them. But uh, I, I felt there was so much, you know, there are little things, there are tongue-in-cheek remarks, there are t-shirts I've seen on Kolaba Causeway, there are, there's the story of the dragonflies, there's the story of how electricity didn't come to Kolaba till the, the uh, geomagnetic observatory was moved away because the British were so into that observatory. And uh, I just felt that those were details I loved, but I but somehow were not fitting in with the main narrative. And so, and then I realized that they fit beautifully at the end of every chapter. So I wouldn't say I planned the structure. I think the structure sort of came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, this is how it should be. So this is how it was. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the book because I could be creative in a new way. You know, it's journalism with a twist. Yeah, I think that that's what made the book special you know oh and and on that note i think one of my favorite quotes uh, um i think it's almost midway i i don't remember the chapter number but there is one that says lesson for life on a kolaba t-shirt entry late hogi par great hogi <laughs> and i felt it was so fitting because this is exactly kolaba's story right entry was late but entry is great as an ardent kolaba wala i have to say that <laughs> So yes, this is it. Honestly, uh, a lot of my writing, even in fiction, I often don't know how the book ends. I've just written a murder mystery, also set in Kolaba. Surprise, surprise, which is coming out in April. And I really, you know, I had no clue who the killer was going to be till two chapters before the end. So I think the killer comes as a surprise to everyone because it came as a surprise to me. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um... You know, uh, Shabda, till I didn't receive the book and I didn't start reading the book, huh? I didn't realize that the first book that I read this year, huh, in 2020, was actually Shivaji Park by Shanta Gokhale, which is also in the Speaking Tiger series. And it has literally um, taken me all of my self-control to not go and start tweeting about how excited I am about the serendipity um, that that the book that I began the year with and the book that I'm ending the year with are actually part of the same series, both Bombay neighborhoods, right? Yeah, absolutely. How funny. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then I realized, you know, towards the end of the book, right, that there is this, and, and I recognized it. I mean, before I, I saw the name, I saw the cover and I said, oh, the covers look so similar. <laughs> and then it struck me. Of course. Yeah. So I think it's quite a, I mean, the series is growing beautifully, I think. And uh, I expect that a lot of other corners of the country will soon come alive in this way. And, you know, I think for me, the great, the, the most amazing part about writing this book really was the fact that there are stories everywhere. And uh, sometimes you don't see them. You don't know about them. Like I've written in the book, three generations of my family have lived here. But I knew so little, really little. And then all you have to do is dig a little and you find the most incredible stories just lurking around the corner waiting to say, ah, I'm here, you never bothered to see me before. And so I'm sure this is true about many, most every neighborhood around the world. It's a matter of just looking. Yeah, and uh, the kind of insights that it can throw into both the personal space, right? Like the part I think in the initial 
Right, where you mentioned that your brother who's has come back to work out of a building which your great grandfather inhabited, and all a coincidence, no, no planning at all. It's just life coming a full circle. That's all. Wonderful. So let us now, I think, Shabnam, uh, segue a little bit into the origin of Bombay, and you have devoted um, while the origin story comes. towards chapter 3 and i'm actually glad that you don't open the book with an origin story because then it, it's too too chronological and too wikipediaish like i think it it comes in after all this personal context has been set so you know one is very invested also by that point of time in the book let us discuss your journey of finding out the origin of bombay the this origin of kolaba um the islands the historical accuracies and inaccuracies you grappled with and the role of the portuguese and the english in all of this yeah so i think like any other mumbaikar i grew up with two important facts about my city one that it was seven islands originally and two that it was given as a dowry of uh, by Catherine Braganza's family to Charles the 2nd to Charles the 2nd upon their marriage as dowry when i got to writing about kolaba i felt you know i was on safe ground i knew seven islands i knew dowry and i just had to fit uh, a few details into place and then i got my massive shock and i think the shock came when i started to look for what exactly is kolaba where do i wh- wh- what are the boundaries it's a little unclear because when you go to the police they look at you blankly and say well this is our uh, this is our ilaka this is where our boundaries are but it has nothing to do with history it has to do with convenience then you go to bmc and you find out that they too parcel up the city in a very different way so somewhere you have to be able to figure out where the, the boundaries are now pin codes didn't help in this case because kolaba actually has three pin codes coming and going in the the area of kolaba so i was really quite numb up and so i decided to start with the gazetteer which is the i i think the standard book that all amateur historian wannabe historians would look at right so i looked at the gazetteer and there was this neat description of your seven islands of bombay parel mahim worli the main island of bombay which is shaped like an h masgao and then to the south the old woman's island which is just like this little stepping stone and then the rocky uh, strip of kolaba so all good then i started looking at maps because i thought okay maybe i will find the old island of kolaba and base that for my boundaries of kolaba and i think that is where when i got my really big surprise because when i started looking at the maps the first map i looked at was the map which said that which said bombay as it was in 1670 okay so i looked at and there were these neat seven islands perfect exactly as imagined and it's the map that comes up whenever you hit wikipedia or whenever you hit any story about the past of bombay so it is very familiar then i started to look at later maps just out of curiosity and i found a map i think it was 1672 something like that by a doctor called uh, Friar, Doctor John Friar, who had come to this part of the world with the East India Company, and it had a very, it had a very rough air to it. And I think I've written in the book it was almost like the map a pizza delivery delivery boy would draw at the back of a napkin. And uh, but the map had no correlation at all with the map of 1670, and something here looked really wrong because he had 
drawn all of Bombay as one, you know, really fat blob. So when I say Bombay, I mean Bombay, Parel, Mahim, Moscow, and the main island of Bombay. And then he had drawn a little tale which he had labeled as Old Woman's Island. And he had written about the seven islands, but the strange thing was he had talked about the island of Bombay, and he had talked about uh, Elephanta, he had talked about Putachos, which is... Uh, uh, what the British then called Butcher's Island and is now, uh, you know, part of the whole Bombay High network. So uh, I was very befuddled because this seven island had no, these seven islands had no correlation with earlier seven islands. This map had no correlation with earlier maps. So I went to Bhaudaji Nad Museum and I started to look at a lot of old maps. And I think that is when I started to understand what had happened. What we are never told is when uh, Bombay was handed over by the Portuguese to the British. It was not a very amicable and friendly transfer. The The British, uh, when they arrived here in their boats with their soldiers uh, to take over the island, th- there was a poor fellow called, uh, I think, uh, Abraham Shipman, something like that. And he, when he arrived here, uh, the Portuguese were already living the good life, the life of the top dog in Bombay and the surrounding islands. They did not want to give up their land. So they made life very difficult and they, kept, they just were refusing to budge. So this poor man was just, was just sitting and waiting to take over Bombay. Now the question was, what was Bombay? The Portuguese said, Bombay is just the central island of Bombay, the H-shaped island. The British said, no, Bombay is Mahim, Parel, Worli, Mazgal and the island of Bombay. And the British were, as it is, very disenchanted by what they had got. Because originally, when they were bargaining for the dowry, they wanted Goa. The Portuguese had said, no, we'll give you Bombay. The British were a little fuzzy about it. And in fact, there is a very famous quote by the Lord Clarendon, who was a big shot then, who said, oh, we are getting this town very close to Brazil with all its castles and forts therein. So they were expecting something glamorous and built up and, you know, very wealthy and huge. When they arrived, they came to these little rocky islands with a little uh, bit of cultivation, a few palm trees, a few fishermen's huts. And they were, as it is, upset. And then they were even more upset when they were told that they would only be getting this one island. To complicate matters, Charles II, who was, I think, not a very committed ruler and more interested than the ladies than in his kingdom, had lost his map. Anyway, uh, in the process, uh, Abraham Shipman was sent off to one island near Karnataka to wait while uh, matters were sorted out. He died. A whole bunch of his troops died. And it was only later that his then secretary managed to come and wrest the island of Bombay. So he managed to only initially get the island of Bombay. After that, he started quibbling. He said that if you can walk anywhere that you can walk by foot is not an island. So if I can walk from Bombay to Mahim by foot, then that is my land. And he actually walked to prove it. And he managed, and that is how he managed to get all these other islands. Now, the thing is, the Portuguese went out of their way to draw Bombay and the surrounding islands as islands because they were trying to prove that only Bombay go to the British. Whereas the British went out of their way to draw it as a single clump of land to prove that, you know, to, to sort of say that all of this belongs to us. And neither were lying, neither were telling the truth because what Bombay was is a bunch of, you know, clumps of land and at low tide, the sea receded and you could actually walk through swampy lands, of course, doing great damage to your shoes and your boots. But, and when the tide came in, 
you needed a boat to go from one place to another. So the Portuguese were right as well. So a lot of it was perception. And uh, the interesting thing is, okay, so the British managed to rest all five islands for themselves. Okay. The only two islands that nobody cared about and that nobody quibbled about was Old Woman's Island and Colaba because they were so inhospitable. They were so small. Who would want a bunch of rocks in the middle of nowhere? And it was only when uh, a far-seeing governor came finally and realized that to, uh, you know, for the defenses of the city, you needed those two islands that he signed a treaty with the Portuguese who readily gave him the, the islands because what would they do with these two little bits of land so far away from Basin and the other places that they were sitting in. So that really, to me, the great surprise was uh, the that the dowry was a very unfriendly exchange and the fact that the seven islands really may not have been seven islands in the conventional sense at all. And uh, yeah, so that in fact was the story that I found and that thrilled me to bits because I think it tells you that when we simplify matters, when we put history down in two or three sentences, you know, that's convenient for the Bon Vita quiz contest or for uh, fill in the blank in school, we are really not doing justice to the complexities of the past and uh, simplifications can be dangerous always. Absolutely. And this is such an incredible story, right? That what is fed to us as facts, right? In, in, uh, dodgily written books right it's just something that's been created out of poetry and memories right rather than observation measurement you know and and this was one of the uh the moments when i was reading the book right i had also presumed right oh that you know one of the things the author uh and, and this especially happens when you're reading non-fiction, right? In, in fiction, you don't know what to expect. In non-fiction, you broadly have an entry point into the subject you're reading about. So I always had, you know, something at the back of my mind that, oh, the author's going to tell us that, you know, this happened and there was this dowry. And then when I read this chapter, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Can you imagine my, oh, no, I froze for a month. I couldn't write. I couldn't take it. This is not what I've learned. This is not what I know. What is going on? Absolutely. And um, all of these, right, histories of people, of personal agendas, of political agendas, they shape so much of what um, becomes our future, right? And yet when in the future, we know so little of the past or we perceive it to be so linear, so without complications, right? Because because there's just like one narrative that we have to fit. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, it's just uh, everything boiled down to these three or four lines that everybody knows and just hiding the truth completely. It's, I think, like pouring concrete over the rocks of Kolabana. You never see what's beneath. So you have idea where the real island lies anymore because it's all uh, swaddled in reclaimed land and uh, paving. But yeah, somewhere the truth is there underneath. So this now, I think, um, and the whole old woman's island versus Kolaba conundrum. And and I think the part where you say that now that I know that this would not make me like a Kolaba ite, but old woman and I refuse yeah I'm a Kolabaite so I decided okay history plays its part it gives you a little bit of an insight into the past but I refuse to define myself purely on the basis of what I have learned because I mean real Kolaba then would start the south would start south of Sasundok which means that half of 
the kolaba that we know and love would be old woman kars and the other half would be reclaimed land kars which is very ugly no don't want that <laughs> so so shabnam i think i will um, in just like the book and the question that you tease us with right towards the end of this chapter uh, when i read this chapter i was like this is this is my favorite chapter and now i have a new anecdote that i want to tell at parties and then when people uh, uh, try to tell me no no there were these islands and there was this dowry i'm going to say wait read this book <laughs> i have it on authority from the author who's done intensive research yes. and actually all you have to do is read enough to see this you know that is the interesting it's all there the materials all there nothing is nothing that i've written is stuff i have actually dug up myself physically i've just dug it out of old books and out of academic papers and it's all there but i guess very few of us there's no reason to read so deeply about everything right unless you're launching into a project and then hence you know books like this, these which give us such a strong sense of our neighborhood and the places we live in are so important because because we never discover for ourselves but but truly we are all such earnest travelers and learning more about our city or our world or experiences is is such a buzzword that it seems trivial to uh, you know live your life without knowing the history of where you are at the moment actually you are telling me you know when i realized I, and honestly i'd been thinking so so my great revelation was okay i always knew that there was a kolaba station railway station that came all the way into kolaba and my grandfather had talked about it and we have a very popular family story that talks about how one day he and his friends got together and they were hanging around and they said are let's just get into a train and they hopped into a train and landed up in surat while their families were going completely frantic thinking where are the boys so we knew about kolaba station where exactly it was for something i didn't know and i asked my mom and i asked various people and everybody vaguely pointed in one direction and said it was there it was there you can find out then i spoke to uh, rajendra akikar who is a great uh, railway historian and he gave me the answer that was i guess so obvious and so startling that i almost fell off my chair he said well the old kolaba station was in badwar park now this makes perfect sense because bazar park is the railway officers colony so it just makes sense that it would have been built in the land that they once used as a station what startled me so much was that when i write i look out of a window as i am writing and that window looks out exactly onto bazar park and to me a huge shock was how easily we forget and how easily we cover up the past and move on because there was no memory at all that my window overlooked what was once badwar park and that the banyan tree outside my window which i love so much was probably the old kolaba station and that the banyan tree that stands in badwar park and that i love quite so much must have looked over kolaba station and the hustle and bustle of the cotton coming in from uh, from the rest of the country and the bullock carts being loaded and the great uh, deals being struck because the other great revelation that you know came as a huge shock to me and to everyone around me was that the entire area a large chunk of the area that we now know as kolaba causeway part of it is reclaimed and the other part was actually the old cotton green of bombay and it was the place 
in a sense of huge importance to the city because when the american civil war was being fought cotton completely dried up from the americas from uh, north and south america it just stopped coming because the war was being fought and the south at the beginning of the war the first thing they did was burn the bales of cotton a huge number of bales of cotton to signal to the world that if you don't support us you guys won't get cotton uh the north also established a blockade on the cotton trade so the the world was looking frantically for alternate sources of cotton and they looked towards two countries egypt and india and what happened was the cotton green in those days was in kolaba and the cotton hunger was so enormous that you can read a lot about how people used to actually rip up their mattresses and sell the cotton from their mattresses just to make a quick buck and all of those transactions were happening in kolaba literally where my building now stands or at where my where basically the place i walked from school to home every day uh, if it had been done uh, not even that long ago ha huh? in the 1860 uh, 1870 1890 i would have been walking through a cotton green filled with wheeling and dealing and englishmen and parsees and traders in carriages muttering under their breaths and praying at the mandir at the corner of my road and you know this mandir at the corner of my road was just a mandir to me it was just a place i passed every day and now every time i pass it i ask it what were the secrets and what were the prayers of all those cotton merchants that you know that you heard and it it really saddens me to think that all of that has been lost but all of that must once have been there so yes those were my two big revelations that you know that really i mean we're talking about a very short span of time we're talking about a little over a okay 150 years this part has changed so dramatically and so the past has been forgotten so much that not even the old timers i meet remember it or know about it and the fact that my grandmother must once have walked through areas that were still active cotton greens and past bales of cotton but never once mentioned it to me i think sparkles me immensely that that make almost one yearn to be uh, i wish you were all compulsive journal writers yes i really really think because you know kolaba what we know about early kolaba is largely thanks to this one guy called uh, john burnell i think and he wrote these two letters to his father and thank god they remained uh, he was a mercenary with the east india company who seemed to be doing a lot of stuff he fought he also did some kind of land measurement and stuff like that so for that he had come to kolaba and so his early description of kolaba really tells us what kolaba was so he talks about this two about 2 miles of rocky land just three quarters uh, of a mile in width uh, surrounded by mangroves and swamp and rocks and uh, he talks about kolaba as having just a couple of these tuna kilns of creating limestone you know limestone kilns and a few coconut groves and 50 to 60 jackals wherever he went which he would try to shoot and never managed and i think just those two letters are such a repository of knowledge it really makes one sad to think that there weren't more people who put down their thoughts or if there were more people that those thoughts didn't survive and i do wish i had talked more to my grandparents i mean that is something that fills me with regret yes and that is and that is in the footnote of chapter 2 and i did i uh, while i read it and while you've written about it in a in a in a passing way i did sense some yearning when when you wrote that shabnam shabnam the next thing that i want to ask you right is what happens to kolaba which 
leads it to go from being this whole mosquito riddled mangrove criminal infested bay in the early 1800s to to the collaba that we know today right and then that is the causeway and and i'm just going to hand it over to you to talk to us about this transformation of collaba aided by the causeway absolutely so the the collaba before the causeway came uh, so even the collaba of the, the late 1700s and the early 1800s was a place that nobody wanted to be uh it's uh, filled with uh, all the stories that you will e- ever find about kolaba are to do with snakes or uh wildlife sighting you know some kind of wild animal or thugs and there is a lovely little i mean very sad but lovely little story about an armenian highwayman and what was an armenian highwayman doing in kolaba question mark question mark but anyway he shoots the ear of the the carriage driver of some mrs parrow so that is this one story and it kind of gives you a sense of what kind of place kolaba must have been where random armenians could shoot off people's ears uh from and it's a place it was a highly inconvenient place primarily because there was a large creek that separated old woman's island from bombay from the island of bombay and uh, this creek there were at low tide you could gallop across but when the tide came in it came in with great ferocity and led to many tragic deaths and many tragic uh, love stories where you know dashing englishmen leapt into the creek and saved gorgeous young women who were either hindu or muslim in the narrative the, that changes very strangely but whatever indian women yeah, there is an excerpt i think in the book also which which you say that see this is what he wrote in the most purple prose and there's a hindu maiden <laughs> so it just it but this was sort of the place where tragedies of these kinds took place and nobody you know nobody wanted to be in kolaba because it was so bloody inconvenient if you go for dinner to somebody's house in bombay bombay and then the tide plays spoil spot you can't come home so you're stuck now in 1836 finally finally after lots and lots of planning a causeway was built what is a causeway it's just a raised strip of land that connects two places and in this case it connected uh, the island of bombay to the island old woman's island the gap between old woman's island and kolaba had been narrower to begin with and it had sometime been reclaimed i think just in a very matter of fact manner by some some industrialist somebody who needed the land over there uh, so that had been taken care of now um, the once the causeway was built everything changed i mean everything changed suddenly land in kolaba became desirable kolaba became accessible you could just drive across now the rich factory owners and industrialists uh, they had their palatial mansions in uh, parel and in malabar hill so they did not view kolaba as a place to build houses they viewed kolaba as a place to build their factories build their warehouses and it became a very very convenient place because think about it the port was near gateway where gateway of india is today right the port was very close uh, slowly kolaba station came in so even the train started coming in Uh, the uh, trams uh, the horse drawn carriages started in kolaba they they began their journey from kolaba eventually the trams started from kolaba so suddenly from being this outpost kolaba became a place where which is very connected and it just made a lot of sense when your tra- average traveler came in tired from his journey by sea or by train kolaba seemed like a nice convenient place to be and when the cotton green was there the hotels started coming up because all the uh, 
uh, traders and all needed places to stay. So you had your Watson's Hotel, which is actually on the island of Bombay, but just at the tip of Kolaba. And I have cheated and written a little about it anyway. Sorry. <laughs> then Majestic Hotel and Apollo Hotel. And they all came up and suddenly Kolaba became the place of, you know, restaurants and bars and CD and not so CD. And of course, it became, in a way, the sort of the dashing and daring corner of the city because you had your travelers, you had your adventurers, you had your traders out for a quick buck. You had uh, all the, you know, people from different parts who came here. And I think in those times, traveling was a big part of the life of a particular kind of businessman. And both my grandfathers, in a sense, were those kind of businessmen. Also, when... So land started being reclaimed in the 1860s in the area from Kolaba Causeway to Gateway of India is almost fully reclaimed. They had reclaimed it because they wanted warehouses. Then they thought, are we are reclaiming anyway? Let us reclaim a little more. And they created a sort of residential area. And suddenly you had houses coming up built by canny investors, Jamshedji Tata being one of them, a whole lot of Gujarati Nawabs and uh, princes being another, uh, who, who decided to just invest in buildings and give out apartments on rent. And so suddenly you had this very, you know, perfect middle class housing. Tata himself wanted the houses. He created these houses for middle class Englishmen who were, who were neither part of the government nor part of the, the military services, but who were coming to do business. And in general, when they came, they were looked down upon by the other Britishers, but they needed accommodation. And so he created these vast buildings, including the building that my great-grandfather moved into. So suddenly you had this middle-class housing, and that attracted, I think, a lot of people who were looking for comfortable houses and who were willing to move out of their immediate community, uh, the area, you know, parts of the other, other parts of the city, which were community oriented. And they were looking for space. They were looking for high ceilings, air, sunlight, and they came here. And what happened is I think there was a huge mix of people uh, that arrived, also driven by the fact that then places like Woodhouse Cathedral were built, which attracted the Catholic community. Um, a lot of Parsis came along with Kushrobag, but that came a little later. The Boras came, I think, because they were traders and looking for a base close to the port, perhaps, and created, I think, a very multicultural area and an area which truly believed that everybody was welcome, which is, in a sense, why I think the Sindhis also found it so uh, welcoming when they arrived after partition. And I, I think this very mosaic and very forgiving and accepting and uh, welcoming aura is what has made Kolaba Kolaba. That is the beauty of it, you know, the that openness and the diversity. And while the book really begins with, you know, you mentioning this in passing, right? The eccentricity, the multiculturalism, etc. But as you read through, you see that, you know, that these are not token words, right? And this especially applied to Kolaba much more than other parts of the city or or um, or the state or you know really this how special the place is um, it comes through right and and it's so interesting that this chapter on reclamation right where you even allude to the whole aspect of Kolaba being that this whole you know a hellhole from like a Charles Dickens book right and then um, and then there is the British Raj and then there is there is so much going on uh, 
and and this whole aspect of launching the apollo bay reclamation and then there are railway tracks and and there is so much happening and you can literally feel the shifting of time and you can literally see this one uh, once desolate uh, distant hell hole of a place transforming into something that's a force to reckon within in so many ways and shapes right the visual imprint of what bombay or mumbai is to people outside of bombay is what is represented by kolaba and and to think of the fact that nobody wanted anything to do with it they were jackets rowing <laughs> and it was contested also um, one of the joys of reading the book shabna is to look at all the pictures and and the po- that images right how how did you sort of decide what goes in what goes out and um, how many to put did the images while your prose is exceedingly uh, you know visual in the sense that one does feel like that they're seeing the buildings and they're sensing the changes and and the transformations that kolaba goes through but because we have visual aids right for instance to see right how do you decide what goes in where and why and when so that really was mainly radhika and the publishers i'm a very non visual person in terms of layout and photographs i went with the photographer to do the contemporary photographs and some of them have been used the old photographs you know as i was doing research if i found anything i would send uh, radhika the images and the links and my mom was a great help because she's on all these whatsapp chats and you know her group is constantly sending old pictures of bombay old pictures of mumbai old pictures of this of that so she would keep forwarding a lot to me masses and masses of stuff and you know we found ourselves sitting on quite a treasure trove by the end of it just it all just came and uh, i think radhika was very clear about how many pictures she could use and how she could use them and she organized all of that so the look is really hers i am just awful at all that but of course i had clear ideas about which buildings i wanted in and areas i wanted in but there were some you know some moments i felt you could not have a book on kolaba without like the one about the building of the causeway being such a momentous thing it needed a picture and that we had that archival uh, image was just amazing but uh, in general yes not me at all but i i, I get you and i uh, also re- really like that that while you you say you're not visual there is a very nice way where you talk about kolaba as a time lapse video right and and the welling fountain is replaced by kolaba station it's replaced by the yacht club it's replaced by the majestic hotel the gateway of india regal right so as a as somebody who's actually walked and been around the area it's as a reader it's a delight because you're also assimilating and thinking of it that way no and it it's, it's very interesting actually because you know how the idea came to me when i was reading an old uh, article in an old uh, railway magazine and uh, the, the people were they were talking about the the building of the alfred siemens rest or the alfred siemens guest house at which is now the director general of police's office 
and uh, he was they were talking about how travelers came from anywhere they were used to just open space and open sky and being able to see the sea from one end to the other and how all eyes were turned to this new huge structure coming up and i started imagining what it must have been like to live then where one day you see one building then you see another coming up and suddenly you know your sky gets blocked and filled by all these structures one around the other and how the kolaba that we know must have been taking shape then how we take it so for granted but with what wonderment the people living then must have viewed it with what wonderment and maybe with some disgust you know because i'm sure there were those who didn't like the change as well to me it was fascinating to think of the emotions of the people living there and i think a lot of this what old fiction books that i found you know really trashy old british english books uh, romances and all but happened to be set in the kolaba of those days i can't tell you how excited i was to get those vivid pictures because you know when you read fiction sometimes it's much more visual than reading non fiction which it often has a very matter of fact style so when i read those you know the little fictional accounts and descriptions i think they brought the past alive to me I think one of the reasons that I enjoyed reading the book so much, perhaps, is also um, because as as somebody who reads both fiction and non-fiction, right, I enjoyed the fact that a fiction writer was writing non-fiction. You know, it's just one of those things that you enjoy poetry when it's written more like prose, or you enjoy prose when it's written slightly more poetically, right? meshing of the two schools of the narrative, right, that make it so much fun to read. also how about the people themselves right you you obviously paint a vivid picture of historical figures and and people who've lived your own family um but with also these very gossipy bits right like the annex and and how you know people have se- had secret liaisons or or all of these little, little gossipy stories and, and and that is so much a part of a neighborhood right yeah absolutely I mean we all grow up with these strange urban legends you know I've mentioned I think in one part the, uh, the there was this couple this la- two ladies who lived and they used to have foster children and there was this one uh, the, there's a hot rumor just because this little girl had brown hair that she was a kidnapped arabian princess and you know it was such a part of my childhood and of the kolaba landscape you know we all believed these little things and of course uh, all the gossip of earlier times even you know little things like the fact that before kolaba station was kolaba station it belonged to this the land belonged to this lady named mrs huff and mrs huff was famous for two reasons she had danced with uh, arthur wellesley when he came uh, before he defeated napoleon and the second reason was that she had a mango tree which bore fruit twice a year and that is such a big fact every british book you read from that age will talk about that mango tree and you can't i can't tell you how excited i got when this mango tree turned out to be again in the land that became the kolaba station again land that i can see from my window and i literally i went to badwar park and i asked all the malis there do you know about this mango tree and they all gaped at me and kept pointing at random trees and say wo to banyan tree hai wo to people tree hai and i kept saying about the mango tree with fruit twice a year but no i couldn't find it sad but god one of these these urban legends and and i don't know back then it's even right to call kolaba urban legend but but i immensely enjoyed this uh, uh, these tidbits as well um, uh, for instance the f- 
I mean, I have seen only one movie ever at Regal. The fact that I didn't know it started its, you call it a celluloid career with a Laurel and Hardy comedy. Everybody is. And then there's Gregory Preck. And there is, you know, um, Rabin Nattagor reciting poetry. So much happening. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I love Regal. It was where my school took me to see every movie that school took us to because we only had to cross the road to go to it. And I remember we saw one movie called Ape and Super Ape and it was a deadly dull movie but there was so much excitement because there were scenes of various animals missing including the human animal. Every class told the other class, you can't imagine what you're going to see. And it was major excitement. So for me, Regal is sitting with all my classmates and giggling, giggling, giggling and stuffing popcorn or samosas into our mouth. So yeah, Regal was, I think, was and still is a huge part of our imaginary, imaginative life here. Yeah. Lovely. This is so delightful. And I think for everyone, right, who will read this book, they will re-experience, you know, um, so much of what they they only pass through, right, today when, when they visit Kolaba. I loved reading so many Bits. I love the trivia. I love the fact that it was an approachable read. So I didn't have to constantly feel the, um, you know, and, and one of the best parts from the book really was that you can pick up any page and start reading from anywhere. Really? Oh, I'm so happy that you enjoyed it so much. I can't tell you how thrilled I'm feeling. Really. And you know, um, you like something and you know, like you'll always be like, oh, I love this part of the city. And but, but there's only so much you know about it. And and I am not somebody who was born in Bombay. And hence, for me, a lot of these discoveries were very, very delightful. In fact, it, it's so funny when I, uh, and I, I, I'm telling you again of the presumptions I had, right? One of the presumptions was that we'll discuss the dowry thing before I began reading the book. Another presumption was that I'd heavily talk about the gateway of India and, you know, that, right? But as I discovered the book, I realized that, okay, it's there and it's important and it's interesting to read about those tidbits also but within the people and the lives and the stories and so much happening the fact that today how I understand Kulaba or how it's visually mostly represented with this aerial shot of the gateway actually doesn't hold much yes it it was just another fragment that makes this neighborhood very special but uh, by itself was just a symbol and a symbol that has you know that has changed over the years. It stood for different things over different times. And we are happy to have it, but uh, we don't define ourselves by it, I think. True. I think before we wrap up this conversation, you have a delightfully detailed bibliography at the end of the book, right? But what are some books, Shabnam, that you would recommend, perhaps about Bombay, if you wish to, from the list of books you've written about, but even the general books that you've enjoyed reading or uh, books that help you get a better idea of the country. So, so over to you really about what it is that you would like to recommend to anybody listening to this podcast to learn more. So Bombay books, I would say of the British historians, the one I really, really loved, and I mean, I read and reread, was Samuel Shepard. And he's written uh, two books that I used extensively. One is simply called Bombay. He's a very tongue-in-cheek, wry kind of man, and I absolutely adore him for that. And the other book he's written is Bombay uh, Names, Names and Places, a History, where he talks about how each uh, street name and place 
has a reason so me you know i think what saddened me a lot after i read this particular book was the way we keep changing the names of roads right we say oh we don't want a british name but there is often a really good reason for why that name is that name for example ormiston road has now become i think bst mark and who was ormiston he was one of the architects who actually built one or maybe two lighthouses around kolaba he was a man who was a part of creating the kolaba we know and love he has a right to have his name here he's not some random british ruler who had nothing to do with the city and that saddens me that we trample upon the past without even asking you know why the name was a name and i think so samuel shepard's book really educated me in those respects the other books i truly enjoyed were as i said the trashy uh, penny romances set in the bombay of those days for many reasons partly because you get so angry when you hear them talk about indians and you want to just slap all those women the, the tone is so dismissive and you real you realize i realize how lucky i am to live in the time i do and in the place i i do a night in bombay is it's like this racy book about the bombays of the 1930s which really really gives you a glimpse into the city in its uh, heyday you know when uh, it it was a time when women from strange eastern european nations were uh dancing in various bars and pubs uh, a time when jazz held sway over the city in a way it was a time when my grandmother was in the city and could hear jazz coming out of every apartment around her house and i, I think a lot of that i'm now writing a young adult romance uh set in mumbai today and the bombay of then and it's two parallel stories based on uh, a di- diary item that my uh, second cousin found from her grandmother with a lot of masala that we had no idea about for the part of family law so um, in a way this has given all these romance books and all these books gave me a sense of the city then and really helped me to place my character of that time other books about india you say gosh i'm trying to think well i as a children's writer i would highly highly recommend so i really really love moen and the monster by anushka ravichankar it's my favorite indian children's book it is the funniest book i've ever read so funny that uh, you know when my kids were growing up we had a rule uh, that this book this book could not be read at dinner time or when the kids were eating because they would laugh so much they would throw up and it's set in bangalore a little boy named moen and one day he wakes up and there's a monster under his bed and the monster says i need a shape and form so you have to draw me and please draw me in this dark purple but moen doesn't have purple so he draws him with a pink crayon the monster says please give me horns moen imagines that they are auto rickshaw horns so he draws the monster with auto rickshaw horns so this poor monster emerges looking like nothing on earth and is very cross and it's just the funniest story ever oh gosh that's adorable that is so adorable <laughs> but shivam thank you for this conversation thank you for writing this delightful book that was almost like you know a warm hug uh, from uh, that part of the city which we all who live a little uh, you know north side only stereotype as snobbish nothing like it. it it's really changed my perspective and it made me feel um warm and it made me feel um, so interested and invested in in the in the community and the personal history um of a neighborhood i'm so glad that this series exists i'm so glad you wrote this book and to everyone listening to this podcast 
please go and pick up a copy from Amazon, Flipkart, independent bookstores near you. Um, if uh, you are remotely interested in Mumbai, remotely interested in history, remotely uh, interested in trivia and anecdotes, um, you will be as delighted as I was. And every time you open a page, it is literally a reading an interesting piece of trivia that you can pick and start from anywhere, read it in one stretch and you will be as delighted over and over again. Thank you. Thank you, Ayushi. I had a lot of fun on your podcast and I'm really absolutely ecstatic that you liked the book so much because as I said, it wasn't really a space I was comfortable in. I was terrified. Let's put it honestly, I was shivering when I started. So, <laughs> no, no, it's come out very well. And and thank you so much, Shabnam, once again for taking out the time and, and sharing and, and, you know, doing this with us, really. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Do not forget to tune into us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, and HT Smartcast.